This is the MG Car Club Podcast with Wayne Scott and Adam Sloman. On this podcast, settle down with a nice drink. Make yourself comfortable because we've got some brilliant stories on this episode from Dr. Ian Pogson from his years working for MG. Adam gives us the inside track on MG Live and we have a buyer's guide to the MG3. The MG Car Club Podcast. Hello and welcome along to the MG Car Club podcast. Hope you're keeping well. Wayne Scott with you and Adam's over there. How you doing, Adam? I'm good, thanks, mate. Although I think my MGB might be possessed. Uh-oh, what's going on? So explain this to me. So we're looking to have some building work done here at the house. So on Monday morning, we had a builder come round bright and early. I forgot there was a seven o'clock in the morning as well in the evening. Um, seven o'clock, he turns up. So I start the B, drive it out of the garage, leave it on the end of the drive, cover it over so it doesn't get any dust on it while he digs the hole. Fine. Come home Monday after a day at Kimber House all day. And because of the new hole in the garage, I had to push the car back into the garage. No problem. Builder came back yesterday, filled the hole in, all good, all hunky-dory. Now I can move the bee back over to the other side of the garage um, because the hole's gone and I can actually get in and out of the garage easily and safely with the bee back where it should be. So I jump in it to drive it out of the garage again, jump in, turn the key, nothing. Just turning over, turning over, turning over. Ah, that's weird. Slight whiff of fuel. Fuel pump not ticking. I was like, okay, well, I'll just have a look under the bonnet. Go to pull the bonnet open and the bonnet catch or the bonnet cable has broken. So now I can't start the car or get under the bonnet to find out what's going on. Um, Yeah, on Monday morning, absolutely fine. Absolutely fine. So I think it's possessed. Sarah thinks it's uh, the spirit of my dad taking the mickey out of me. Um, But the long and short of it is that I've now got another problem with the bee and I still can't use them. So how how are you going to get the bonnet open if the cable's gone? That's the next question. At the moment, I don't know. I'm hoping that our listeners might have some wonderful suggestions. Help Adam, please. Has a bonnet cable gone in your MGB? How did you fix it? Get in touch with us here at mgpodcast.uk. Use the contact form, or even better, leave us a voice message using the voice recorder that you'll find on the website, mgpodcast.uk. Can anyone help Adam with his broken bonnet cable because otherwise well you're not going to find out why it's not starting i bet what will happen though here's my prediction for you that when you get the bonnet cable fixed it will start on the button (laughs) probably probably and and time is pressing because if things go as planned we should have our garage demolished Um, and i don't really want the bee in there when the builders start knocking bricks everywhere (laughs) no no not ideal um Although I have to ask the sanity of someone who is demolishing their garage when they've got an MGB. I hope you've got another garage to be replacing it with. Absolutely. It has to be demolished to be rebuilt. So uh, so hopefully I'll have, you know, I've, I've spoken to Sarah and, and sort of mentioned the phrase four post lift. Um, <laughs> it, she said four post bed. Um, so I might just let her run with that and see how far I can get. I saw one of those builders once. I think it was on... Either Crime Watch or Watchdog, one of them <laughs> said that they have to tear it all down in order to rebuild it. I'm sure it was one of those programmes. I forget how the story went now, but um, I do remember it didn't end well. Uh, so help Adam if you can, please. And uh, more stuff in the news this week. Interestingly to see uh, next week that in India, MG are going to be starting production on the new Hector. Uh, this is not a car that we have in the UK, but... Uh, listeners over there in uh, india will be very very excited to see the hector plus joining the lineup and it's the company's next big ticket offering in india and it's going to be made at its plant in gujarat's halol and uh, it's laden absolutely bristling with technology it's a seven seater suv and before anyone sort of gets upset at the fact that mg is making an suv we've got to get with the program i think because Yes, it's a sports car brand to many of us, but so is Porsche. They're making an SUV. So is Jaguar. So is Bentley. So is Maserati at the moment. So I don't think it's unusual to see a brand like MG making an SUV. And at the end of the day, Adam, they've got to make cars people want to buy. Be interesting to see how this one goes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the Hector's given them a huge um, leg up into the Indian market. 
that market is dominated by largely by Suzuki um, and their Indian partner uh, Maruti. Um, and yeah, if they if they were to try and go with something sort of more traditionally MG, um, even something like a like an MG three um, would I think would initially struggle um, because of the the dominance of of brands like Suzuki and Tata, who obviously also own Jaguar. Uh, and Land Rover. So yeah, the the Hector's been a huge success for them. Really interesting to see how the Hector Plus gets on when it launches um, pretty soon. They've actually got a couple of them over here at the moment. They've been filming their uh, next round of Indian TV campaigns over here in the UK. So um, so yeah, there's been a couple on our soil. Well, the big competition for the Hector Plus, of course, is the Toyota Innova Crista, which is the big selling SUV in India at the moment. So the idea for them is that they topple that off the sales charts in India. Uh, fingers crossed for them. And it was great to hear the guys from MG India here on the podcast just a couple of episodes ago. Their enthusiasm for MG knows no bounds, doesn't it? Yeah, they're amazing. They are. They've been an absolute pleasure to work with. And just the links that they're building between classic MG owners and the people buying uh, the new MGs in India is is really encouraging to see. And it's a, it underlines what the MG community is all about. Well, you can hear our interview with Gurav Gupta on episode nine of the MG Car Club podcast. Podcast, all listenable whenever you like, wherever you like, via mgpodcast.uk. Back to MG Car Club matters, and we had some well bad news from you, Adam, because we had to go out and tell everyone that MG Live sadly is not happening this year. Oh, and didn't we try our best to try and not only get a new date but a venue and some kind of steer and guidance on how an event could run before the end of the year? But ultimately, it just wasn't meant to be. Yeah, we're obviously bitterly, bitterly disappointed and we did try everything and I thought of every possible opportunity and, and just a way to try and make the event happen this year. But as you say, sadly, it's just it's not to be and we're not alone. Um, I think if you look across the, the classic car industry, um, across the the whole community, across all the event uh, industry, you know, so much has been cancelled and so much has been moved to, to 2021. We were hoping that things were going to improve. We were hoping and praying that there would be some sort of miracle in the in the guidance and and the the whole coronavirus situation but when push came to shove there was there was no real alternative for us but to move the event back to 2021 and the problem is as well we need to have a, a venue and the resources to be able to put on mg live that people expect and deserve really and you know we did look at other sort of venues and places where the the event could go on a smaller scale but it just wouldn't be mg live would it no it wouldn't deliver what the membership and what the mg community deserve and i i love mg live for me it's it's a brilliant weekend because we get to see so many people that perhaps we only hear from occasionally when you get an email from but you get to see all sorts of people from right across the club from all over the world come and join us at Silverstone and and like you say if we took it to a smaller venue if we had to cap the number of people that could attend it just wouldn't be MG Live and it just wouldn't be the weekend that everyone deserves so yeah it's with a heavy heart that that we roll it back to, to 2021. But the good news is more time to plan the party. <laughs> And it's going to be even bigger for 2021. I've got a genuine question here. And I'm going to say I'm asking for a friend, which sounds a bit dodgy, but honestly, I am asking (laughs) for a friend. And this particular friend said to me, I fancy an MG3, you know. She's been looking for a car, doesn't really know what car she wants, spotted an MG3 and said, that is the car for me. And I said, that's a splendid choice, as you can imagine I would. Um, But to be honest... I could tell anyone anything they need to know about buying a classic MG, but I'm not too hot on the buyer's information uh, behind the MG3. So perhaps we can have from you, Adam, a bit of an MG3 buyer's guide Mm. for me and my friend, basically. Um, So firstly, what should we be looking for when we poke about one on the dealer's forecourt? Well, personally, um, my initial recommendation to you would be if a budget can stretch to it, I would go for one of the facelift cars um, that have got the new MG family face on them. Um, they all come with a with a seven inch touchscreen, um, and it's a, a lot 
a lot nicer, a lot more modern inside. The early cars are great, um, but that facelift really sort of brought it up to date um, in a number of ways with sort of soft touch plastics, um, some nicer, more supportive seats, um, and just a just a nicer place to be. Um, all MG3s are great. They're all powered by the same 1.5-litre uh, petrol. Um, the one thing to look at with the engines is if you are going for a, for a Mark 1, um, one of the earlier cars, is to check the timing chain because there was an issue with some of the cars where they suffered from a slack timing chain. A lot of them have been replaced under warranty, um, and I believe uh, MG switched to a German-made timing chain on those cars um, the key symptom with a with a dodgy timing chain is if the, if you jump in and the car struggles to start turns over sort of four five six times before it fires that's an indication that your timing chain is is slack um, like I said the the facelift cars though they all come with a seven-year warranty so they're they're well worth considering there are some really good options um, in terms of price um, and the the level of spec and kit is is brilliant i mean on the um facelift cars they've all got apple carplay um and unless you go for the for the really base model you know they've all got alloy wheels um yeah there's a there's a lot to like i really like the mg3 i think it's a really funky little bit of kit um i did the launch back in 2013 and even those initial launch cars were, were really promising and really good fun um it's everything you want from a small mg it reminds me a lot of of, of my old mg metro um it's a bit cheeky it's good fun to drive you can personalize them to the hilt there's loads of different options of colors and sticker packs and wheel designs so yeah there's there's loads you can do to them and there's there's quite a sort of nice little enthusiast community with them as well with the with the 635 register obviously chinese built and let's be honest there isn't an mg dealership on every street corner at the moment that will no doubt come in time but at the moment they're fairly few and far between so in terms of finding parts for mg3s keeping them serviced and all of that kind of stuff how easy is it can the parts be easily found from most normal parts suppliers yeah i mean some of them were finished at longbridge um so there are some longbridge finished cars but the vast majority of them now would be uh china built um but um but yeah there's there's i mean the parts are readily available there are uh, a fair few um, MG specialists that are sort of focusing on the more modern cars. Um, I know John Woods Motorcare do a lot of um, MG3 bits. I know um, Roger Briscoe um, has a business um, that sells a lot of parts for MG3. There's Martin Smith, um, the, who's, who's a, an MG, a modern MG specialist. He can provide you with all the bits you'd want for your three uh, same of college motors so there's a nice network of specialists out there um, and there are a few simple things you can do to to improve them quite easily um, one of the first things that a lot of people do is to is to change the plugs and the leads and upgrade those um, which does really improve a lot of things with the car so yeah i'd have no no issue in, in recommending an mg3 they're they're a really decent little bit and kit. they're quite funky as well the one we saw on the road that caught her eye was this sort of it looked like it had a kind of sporty body on it and it had these like go faster decals along the sills and it just looked the piece it really did it yeah there's loads of sticker packs you can get um and if if you if your friend does buy one and it hasn't got those um you can get them fitted through your mg dealer for for not very much money at all um in fact at one point i know mg were even going as far as allowing you to create your own personalized decals for the roof and things like that so you could send them your own picture and then get it turned into a decal so that seven-year warranty was quite a, a big news item at the time and is transferable between owners so that's that's a really good thing excellent that's great advice uh we should take some for a test drive i shall have to readjust my brain for little four-cylinder engines but uh, apart from that uh, excited to get under the skin of the mg3 and uh, yeah hopefully uh, get a lot of support from the mg car club as of course you would do if you bought one as well and we're always looking for people to come and join this worldwide mg car club family where we support each other just like adam's helped me there we help each other all across the world to buy and keep mgs on the road of any age even pre-war ones 60s ones 70s 80s you got an mg montego you're welcome as well 
all you have to do is go to our website mgpodcast.uk where you might even be listening to this podcast from and click the join now button at the top right hand corner of the home page and you can join the world's best mg car club and you get free magazine as well called safety fast the best mg magazine out there need i say any more it'd be really lovely to have you along in the mg car club well, of course, for more MG news, you can always go to our website, mgcarclubmgcc.co.uk for all the latest news from the MG Car Club. And by the way, as well, if you don't get our weekly newsletter, that has loads of information from the world of MG in it as well. That's also really easy to sign up to. You can do it via mgcc.co.uk. Just uh, use the sign up to our newsletter button there and you just it's very easy you just type in your email address click submit and you're on the list you get all the information before everyone else gets it make sure that you're ahead of the game well next on the mg car club podcast we'll be talking to dr ian pogson as our feature interview for this episode i'm really looking forward to this he's had a very long career in engineering starting at land rover as a graduate trainee supervisor in 1980 has an engineering doctorate and worked with mg on the mgf in 91 then the rv8 and was heavily involved in the chinese mgtf resurrection He's got some fantastic tales of working at Longbridge and what it was like within the MG Rover Group during that period. And also he's going to tell us his own story of when he met Brian Johnson from ACDC. It's next. The MG Car Club Podcast. The MG Car Club. The mark of friendship. To take advantage of our many membership benefits, access to our centres and registers, and to receive your copy of Safety Fast magazine, Join us now at mgcc.go.uk. Sharing your passion for MG on the MG Car Club podcast. Welcome along, Dr. Ian Pogson. Hiya. Oh, thank you very much. Good day to you, Wayne. It's lovely to speak to you. Now, first of all, before we tell your life story, I must ask you, because we were hoping to do this interview yesterday, but we couldn't, because you were test driving a GS. So you've got to tell us what you thought, what were the verdict was. <laughs> well, actually, yesterday was my wedding anniversary, and so nothing was going to get in the way. And we test drove the uh, HS, sorry, this morning uh, at the wonderful Summit Garage at, at Lower Gorlo which is in the black country for those who aren't from around here. So, yeah, we took the, um, and it was for my wife, because I have a TS uh, and I ride motorcycles. So I, I, don't, I don't have any more money for, because I've just bought an MV Augusta motorcycle, and that's right. Um, but the HS was, was impressive. I have to say, it was a DCT exclusive edition. And you look at the price, and you look at the offer that they've got on at the moment, and you think... That's a very nice car. Its ride was very good. The gearbox, and it hadn't really adapted to our driving. It was learning as, as we went the short test drive. And it was up and down dale and round corners and a bit of dual carriageway. It was about eight miles. And, uh, yeah, because MG, MG, the new MG, the China MG, that I'm so strongly associated with, it just gets better with every car. Um, it's... It's evolving. It was a very, very young company when I started working for them way back in 2005. Um, and so it's still quite a young car company. And uh, we did wonder when we were working for them, because our job was to teach the young engineers how to behave and how to be engineers. Um, we did wonder if they actually listened sometimes, but they, they clearly did. And they've moved on. And, it, and it's, it's really quite impressive. So, yeah. That was a good good test drive, thank you. They get a lot of criticism, of course, uh, MG, for not currently having a sports car in the range. But the critical thing for them is that they are making cars that people want to buy, aren't they? And that's the main thing. That's what every car company needs to do. Yeah, well, the, 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 the car industry, as Ant was... Because Ant made a lot of really good points in the, in the previous podcast. But one of the things he missed out that I'm always keen to teach my students is right class how much do you think it costs to put a brand new vehicle on the road from a blank sheet of paper and lots of estimates you know, a couple of million 200 million 400 500 million well it's probably gone up now but the last time i looked it was a billion of your great british pounds 
that's a lot of money. Um, one project I was associated with, I was responsible for the front and rear axles into production, was the 38A Range Rover. Um, and that, the whole budget for that car was £330 million, pounds, a third of what it probably should have been. The, the budget for the 7 Series at the time was about £700 million. Pounds. So getting towards what it's doing. So whatever the car is, and then the PF, of course, was a legendary figure. It was somewhere around £70 million, pounds, seven zero. So nothing in real terms. That's why it has so many annoying faults, but we all love it. Um, so, uh, so I try and get that, that, that point over. When people, and you know, when I worked for Shanghai Automotive and stood on uh, an MG stand, and, and they say, why aren't they doing a two-seater sports car, and, and why have you finished the TF? And, well, it was easy to say why we'd finished TF, because there weren't any gearboxes left. That was the real reason the car <laughs> finished production. Um, and all the gearboxes were made in this country, and, of course, it was a Honda gearbox that was re-engineered and, and made here, and all the drawings were annotated in, in either Japanese or Brummie. So unless you understood both of those things, you couldn't make any gearboxes, and they did try, but they couldn't, so we ran out. Uh, and it was an old car and it wouldn't be new crash regs, da 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 so you have to start again. And then, if you think of a billion great British pounds, it's a stupid way of making money. There's so many risks in building a motor car. Um, and so, if you've spent all that money, you then have to sell a car. And if you take a, a basic, boggo, cheapo car, and let's take the MG3 as an example, when it came out, um, it was it was a ten grand car for all intents and purposes, just under, just over. Um, so if you sell a ten grand car, you're not going to make a lot of money on it because you've got to pay to make it. You've got to pay for the bits. If you sell a fifty grand Range Rover, you're going to make a bit more money on it, but you're not going to sell as many. So to get your one billion pounds back is going to take you a long time, and you don't tend to do it on car manufacturer per se. You do it on finance. You do it on insurance. You do it on accessories. I mean, you've got to be dead sure it's going to be a success. <laughs> and I remember when I bought, or me and my, my colleague, Tim, we bought the first Mazda Miata, which, again, you were talking about with, 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 uh, with Adam, um, into the country, into Canley, which at that time, and you talked about Gordon Sked, the amazing you know, Mr. Shed, um, about uh, about the impact that that car had on the BL or the Rover management at the time, it was Rover then, of course. Um, and I was there watching that happen and the chins being rubbed uh, and Roy Axe had just left as I turned up to, to work at Canley. And so it was it was now the, the reign of, of Gordon Shedd. And, um, and it was right, oh, how can we, how can we respond to this? Well, it's interesting just hearing you talking about the fact that they'd bought an MX-5 or Miata, as they're called, uh, over in their home country. Because the backstory to that, of course, was that there were concepts, as you mentioned, like the EXC, for a sports car. They were very keen to get a sports car back in the market. But I think it was Spen King that had gone out to America and come back and said, look, no one's going to buy them. They're not, they're not in the market anymore. Was there then genuine surprise when that Miata turned up? It was good and it was affordable and the press and the public seemed to well, go mad for it, basically. Were they genuinely shocked at that? Oh, yeah. For me, because I, uh, I was a senior manager at the time, so I wasn't in the high echelons of the, of the company, but I was reasonably well connected. And my, uh, my daily route, you would have loved, you and Adam would have loved, and Adam would have loved this. My daily route uh, was through the styling studio. So every day I would see people like Jerry McGovern um, with his uh, simply red haircut and his, and his long trench coat, stood there rubbing his chin, leaning back and, 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 and considering the lines he'd cut into whatever it was, you know, Project Odin or whatever it was. Because um, my, my, the two guys who worked for me were out the back um, and, and that's where we received our competitive cars because we, we ran and cycled competitive cars through depending on the projects that were in the design studio. So I got full clearance to see everything. Um, and when this, we bought this, uh, Tim bought this Miata, um, and it was, it was a lovely, lovely sky blue sort of color. And it was all there. And it was that lovely black interior. And it just sat there and, and shouted quality at you. And it, it shouted, buy me, drive me. 
And then when you read the story of that, what they die had been instructed to do at, at Mazda um, was was to create something that people really would want to drive and, and grin a lot. A project like a sports car is one of those that gets everybody excited. That's why we're talking now. And so it, it's something to rally the troops with when times are bad. And, and so you'll keep something like that going on the back burner, if not the front burner. You know, if there's not a, a PDL or a PPL or a PIL4, something like that, the studio will often, well, we'll just make one anyway, you know. Um, called skunk projects because they're not approved by the board and they're a bit smelly and people do them at the weekends and in the evenings and, <laughs> and then they'll just wheel it out and say, hey, look at what we've just done. Um, and if you get buy-in from the senior management, uh, and, and bearing in mind, there was one of the directors of Rove at the time, um, and he was a sir, and I won't, I won't mention any more names, but I met him on a couple of occasions, and I had to address him and other people about what we were doing, because I would leave the show quite often, and the competitive vehicles, and so, this is what we're going to do, I'm going to ask you to look at these vehicles and do this. And he wasn't even numerate. He was running the company, and he wasn't even numerate. Now, I'm not the best of mathematics, but that's the sort of person you had, you know. Um, and uh, and so they weren't the, always the brightest sparks. I mean, one of the, the, the brightest sparks in, 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 in Rover, um, George Turnbull, turned, was given a special project to build a car in Korea, which became the Hyundai Pony. And most people back here in his management thought he was a nutter. He wasn't. He was dead right. Um, but they wouldn't listen to him. So there's always been lots of profits in the business who say, oh, we need this, and, and here's, a, here's a sketch or a mock-up or a whatever. And you get all these um, concept cars that you've talked about before, um, which, you know, get a bit of excitement for a while, but then the board come down and goes, no, oh, no, we can't afford that. Or we want you to use this ancient A-series engine to power it, and you, you get the first rush of the Metro, which was a sad, slow-looking car whose front wing's rusted because it had got a cross-member behind it with foam on it that attracted the water and it rusted and everybody hated it. And then it got the K engine and, and, and it got another gear and, and life was much better. Um, but effectively the damage had been done in many ways. Well, of course, it was a time of great change and Honda were on board by this time, weren't they? Often people say, well, why did Honda get together with, with Rover? And, and I'll give you the reason, and this comes from a very reliable uh, uh, small person in Scotland who's a top engineer, who knew the Honda chief engineer very, very personally at the time. And he said, the Honda chief engineer said, the reason why we partnered with Rover was because we found the most innovative and flexible people at Longbridge compared to the other European manufacturers we visited. Now, that's the, that's the truth. That's the story. You can believe it or not, but that's actually what happened. And so um, it wasn't them feeling sorry for us, and they thought they'd put some money into Longbridge because, as I've said, making cars is a money pit. It was because of that. So we've always had that innovation around. I mean, people laugh at a Cortic steering wheel on Allegro, but hang on, it's not such a bad idea if you want to get a pair of legs underneath it. And, um, and a talking dashboard on a, you talked about an MG Montego. They were amazing bits of tech but underdeveloped, but the idea was brilliant. I mean, I, run, I ran 60 vehicles in 1983-84 out of Gaiden, out of the reliability workshop. One of them was a talking dashboard MG Montego AFI. And um, if, you, if you flicked the overhead fluorescent tubes on over the, uh, over the electrical bay when it was parked there, the thing would spark up. It was like... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was a great car to drive. The engine was brilliant. You know, it really was. You could keep the oil in it. It was fabulous. And like a lot of things, Rover or whatever, it was underdeveloped and underfunded and ill-conceived and all that. And, and when I went to, when we all worked for, for, for BMW, they were great years, honestly. They were great years. We taught them a lot, especially about prototype manufacture and rapid prototyping. They haven't a clue compared to what we had. We were doing stereolithography in 1990 at Canley. They were staggered when they took over what we could do. And so, uh, but when you work for BMW and you went to the FITS Engineering Centre in Munich, you could smell the money as you walked in. You could feel the swagger. You could see the confidence. But 
the day that the A-class Mercedes failed its out test, everybody was talking about it. Everybody was laughing, lots of German jokes. And, but even the secretaries were talking, even non-technical people were talking about it because cars and petrol headiness is in BMW. And although one person famously said they'd got one lousy car and one lousy engine, he was a rover director, and they went on to do what they've done so well. And I loved working for them because if you've got a problem, you said, look, I don't think this is right. Here's my evidence. This is what my proposal is. And my manager's a, a dead end or whatever. I can't, get, I can't get around him. So I'm appealing to you, his boss. Um, this is my work. And you'd get a hearing, you know. So it, it's, it's a strange world is the automotive industry. It, it really is. And you know, I've worked for Land Rover, then I worked for Rover Group, and then I worked for SIC for 10 years, and then I worked for JLR for four and a half years. What would you say was the biggest change working for all of those companies throughout those years? When Honda really stamped their mark, um, because not many people know this, but they sold a, a car, and you can imagine them pronouncing it, it's called a Honda Crossroads, which was a Honda badge discovery. Um, and we, we supplied Honda with diesel engines, L-series diesel engines, as I'm sure you know, to, to go to Swindon to go into the Civic before they built their own. Um, and uh, and it, was, it was quality. We had a program called TQI, um, uh, Total Quality uh, Intolerance, I call it, but T- Total Quality Initiative it was. And it was initiative of the board, fair play to them, to get us all to do things as simple as this is how you answer the telephone. And was that a philosophy um, that Honda brought in then to the factory at the time? It had been seen there. It was brought in independently of them, of right. our own volition, because I think what we taught Honda, and, and I think they would readily admit this, and the, 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 the Rover 600 and its, and, its, and its Honda version are definite examples of this, we taught them about interior and exterior styling mm-hmm. um, for, our, for our market specifically. Um, and they taught us about quality. Mm. The first 100,000 engines they sent to us, there was one tappet maladjusted. That's it. Thank you very much. Mm. So when we sold them L-series engines for, for their Civic, um, they sent quite a few back. Because <laughs> if they found one wrong in a pallet, they'd send a whole pallet back. <laughs> I've just read a book which I highly recommend. It's called Living in a Plant, the plant being the Longbridge plant, by a gentleman called David Caffrey. Now, David self-published this. It's, uh, what, 229 pages long? The last photograph is of a quartic steering wheel. But it's about his five years working in Westworks at Longbridge. And it's, it gives you a real insight into real factory life. And there's some, you, and you can see where the quality was going you can see where the management was 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 weak you can see so many things about the company we loved or hated or whatever um and uh and it's it really is a, a recommended read living in a plant david caffrey and um uh and quality is something that clearly had passed him by officially unofficially he realized that there was a process and there was a better way of doing things and he tried to make suggestions to, to, to improve it. But politics and, 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 and you know, the gifts that always appear in life or poor management got in the way. It's interesting to hear you talk about those stories from within the factory and, and how colleagues were responding to various policies and things that came through because the, the image we were always portrayed of the British motor industry in general, but in particular of Rover Group, really, was that the workforce were pretty dispassionate about the cars and the products they were making. They clocked in, oh, no. they clocked out, and they weren't really that bothered. I've always known that was unfair. Why Why do you think it has that reputation? And, and it is wrong, isn't it? It is. I mean, here's a little story. Um, I was a senior manager in logistics for a while and I was given that job because nobody else wanted to do it. And I think some people thought I would fail and they want, you know, some people get thrills out of seeing people fail. 
And um, I was responsible for physical logistics. So the physical act of getting the parts from suppliers A, B, C, and D, bringing them to the factory, getting them on the shop floor. Fascinating. Most of it was about mathematics. Um, but there came an edict from, uh, from MG Rover, our customer, and we tended to mirror what they did, which was, right, we're going to demand this area, um, logistics, because all you guys do is move stacker trucks and put parts line side. We can get TNT or XL to do that. Yeah, yeah, you can. But these guys have had 20 years knowing where to put it and when we build a different variant, where that pallet then goes and what the parts should look like and how they should be lined up and da 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 so uh, I went into the trade union office and I said to the guys, who were quite a young bunch, I said, uh, this is coming, did you know? Oh, yeah, we heard about that. What are we going to do? I said, well, um, well, do you want my help? Uh, well, yeah, yeah, what, what can you do? I said, well, what you need to do as a TU is tender for the job because outside suppliers like TNT and XR and the others are going to be submitting a tender to do this work. They don't know the work. You do. Your advantage is that card. So why don't you write a tender for the business? You're going to have to accept that we're going to have to lose a head here and there. So if you can do that, which you know will be de redeployed somewhere else in the spirit of things, but the gap at the top will see the figure for logistics has gone down. And so we've achieved the objective. Oh, well, they said, oh, that's interesting. Uh, how do we write a tender? Oh, right, okay. Well, this is how you write a tender. So I, I, I helped them out. Now, nobody would ever believe that in the newspapers because that was good news. That was a trade union <laughs> being young, spirited, positive, helpful, resourceful, and asking for help from a, from a senior manager, which is, goes against all the stories you want to hear about the red robber rubbish and all that sort of stuff that still hangs up. And we as Brits like to knock our own industry. That's what always pigged us off about the media. They always love to, 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 to knock us. And after a while, some people just got browbeaten by it and believed it. I think we tend to judge British cars from a different era against the standards of today. You see that a lot in yeah. the media. You know, a Morris Marina didn't yeah. start most mornings, but then neither did most other cars that you could buy that had been sourced <laughs> elsewhere, you know? Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it's, it, you know, we tend to judge things by modern standards, and that was pretty much what, what was achievable then and, and perhaps very unfair. Where do you think, Ian, looking back and looking at where things are now, where do you think, A, things went wrong, really. What was the, the one final thing you think ended the mass-produced British car market? And then what do you think the Chinese owners of the MG brand now have got right that will see them into the future? Um, mm, that's, that, that's a good pair of questions. So the one thing that went wrong, I'll take first. Um, I don't think there is a one thing. Um, apart from a... I'm going to make a massive generalization here. Um, and whatever industry you're in, especially the NHS, um, or perhaps banking or accountancy or whatever, the worst thing that we do in this country is manage. We manage poorly. We do all these courses on MAs and, and all that sort of stuff and management courses. But actually, the standard of management I've witnessed throughout my career has been astonishingly poor. If you take a, a Lord Austin, he would walk around his factory. He did management by walking about. He knew his people, he knew their names, he knew the families. They respected him. He could jump on the machine and do the job. And of the managers I recall that were respected they were much more like the Austin type of person. And I, and I, I very much suspect Frederick Lanchester, my hero, was the same, very much the same. Um, and, uh, and so it, it, it was, in my view, management. Um, I mean, the, the nail in the MG Rover coffin um, at the very end was the fact that what we needed was a, a new medium volume car. We needed a volume car to keep the business going because... If you ask Toyota, they'll say, you need 400,000 units, be the engines or cars, coming out of a plant to make it viable. That's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of volume. We hadn't got that. Yeah, we got some aging 45s and 25s. We needed something new. 
So what did the idiots do? But they gave the job to TWR, Tom Walkinshaw Racing, who spent loads of money, lined their own pockets, and then went belly up themselves for whatever reasons I don't know. So they took the engineering and all the money and all the time with them. We were left high and dry. So in the interim, what had we done? Oh, we'd got this Kuvale Mangusta project, which some idiot who went to see it, who was probably a finance director, said was, uh, he believed was homologated to the United States, and there was no way it ever was. Um, it was the most awful chassis. Heavy, wouldn't crash, da-da-da. And any of our methods builds and engineers, the real brilliant guys at our place, would take one look at it and go, what is this? We should have, if anything, we should have bought TVR. And, uh, and I, one of my jobs was, was, was supplying him uh, V8 engines up to, up to Thornton Cleveland. Uh, and gearboxes for, for the TVRs at one point. I had a great job. Morgan, Leyland Daff, or, uh, Marcos, Jeunesse, all these people had our engines and gearboxes. When I worked in China, if you said to Wang, right, Wang, put that bit on there using that tool to that process, you could come back two years later and Wang would still be doing it. And he'd be doing it right. You know, all the K-series engines that we made that became N-series for Nanjing, Nanjing engines that were made at the, you know, the beginning of the, and for all the TFs that we made. Do you know, I, I didn't have one returned engine failure because the Chinese made a better engine than we did on the same equipment that they moved from Longbridge, but it was cleaner because they, you know, they got the idea and, and I had lots of arguments with our management in the UK about keeping their track clean. Um, or we can't afford it. Well, okay, you can afford the warranty, but you can't afford you know, to clean the plans. Um, so complete rubbish they were talking most of the time. But the Chinese got it. I mean, all the TFs that were ever made were made with the front, with the uh, bump stop on the front suspension, the bump steer, set incorrectly. I'd say we did a measurement and less than half were banged on correct. And then one of the engineers came up with a brilliant way of setting the bump steer on the track. So before the, before the front um, suspension subframe went in, uh, you know, well, the, before the body was dropped onto it, the bump steer was correct. And it was done with a laser pen, a couple of clamps, and a target board made out of wood that he'd done in his garage. Right, and we got the guys into the engineering technical centre and said, right, lads, we've measured loads of TFs and the, the bump steering isn't quite as good as it should be and we want to promote a good handling car because at the time I was a programme manager for the uh, 85th anniversary TF and we want this to be the best handling TF we've ever made and this is one reason why it was. And uh, I was also the chief engineer for the, for the, for the, for the car, so it was my car. Uh, nobody else wanted the job, that's why I got you. And... Um, and we showed the lads on the track who assembled the sub the, the subframes. Right, this is what the engineering should be. So a, a wheel doesn't go straight up and down. It would be nice if it did, but it doesn't. It actually goes in an arc, and there's a good reason for that, for steering and, and suspension reasons. And so this, whatever we build should describe this arc. So if, if, if we can achieve that arc movement, and you can do it by putting a, a shim in here or taking a shim from there, dead easy, if we can come up with a process for doing that, we get a better handling car, and here's our proof. So, you know, we've got laser-lined cars. We checked them off the wheel and machine in the factory. We checked them on the engineering kit, found a difference, and said, right, this is what we need to do. And so Phil came up with a Phil Turner, brilliant bloke, came up with this, right, we're going to get the lads to put this laser pen on the brake disc, clamp it on, point it down the track to the target board. The target board's got three arcs on it, um, a red and an amber and a green, and we want it on the green, the one in the middle. And so you just grab hold of your special uh, articulation stick, move the part-assembled front suspension up and down. You can see the laser pen describing an arc down the track on the board. Is it in the right band? Is it not? If it's not, adjust to suit, check again, away you go. The difference was a the first bump you went over in the factory when you drove an 85th, you thought, this car's right. We celebrate 25 years since the <laughs> launch of the MGF. Um, amazing yeah. that it's a quarter of a century ago since MG yeah. came back into the world of sports cars. What's your fondest memory of when the MGF was launched in the 90s? Well, what, 
I'd not say fondest, funniest, we as the management and uh, whatever at the design studio at Canley. So, yeah, the old tram factory was our design studio. And we were called into the, um, uh, what we call the showroom, which is a big room with adjustable lights in it so you could simulate street lights and what, um, uh, right down to floodlights. It was a, an amazing big, big room. So it accommodated all of us that were there at the, at the time. Right, and, and we're now going to present you the new car, which was the F. Now, yeah, we've seen bits and bobs of it. And of course, when you're doing a styling studio, you do a project, it gets approved and it goes. And you don't see it again because you're working on the next thing. And because what you're working on is years ahead of the actual production car, you might see a prototype, uh, which of course were, were Metro bread bands. Um, but anyway, so the bloke ascends the stage to give us the presentation about this new, exciting, vibrant, British sports car, and he was a lovely lad, but he was the most boring presenter on the planet. <laughs> Honestly, he is a, a lovely guy in many respects, but the wrong person for doing that. Why? Why wasn't there some petrol head rather than this really stereotypical engineer accountant type person? The worst of both. And so, so that's that's one memory of uh, of that car. The the other, of course, is, is is the delightful Mr. McGovern. I mean, Jerry's completely, and I've got some funny evidence for this. Lost in show business now. Um, yeah, he says he's just a normal working class Coventry lad, but but no, he, he he's lost it. There's two of Jerry's best on my drive. There's my TF, which is a 2000. Uh, uh, 2005 final days uh, TF, which he dressed up to look a bit like a, an 85th because of my link to it. And then um, my wife's Evoke. Hmm. And two more beautiful cars you, you, you can't imagine. If, if, if just watching people like Jerry work, um, stylists, it, it's very fond memories of the early days of, of, of MGF. And then looking at the guys behind the scenes, the engineering guys, the concept engineering guys, who were trying to use this parts bin of, of Rover stuff to create the car, you know, the metro door mirrors and, and stuff like that, and, and try and not spend money. And to see them sweating over the not spend any money was fascinating. When you thought back to that beautiful Mazda Maillata upon me that we, um, that we had, but if you wind the clock forward, a fond but sad memory was when I signed the boot of the last TF we ever made. So before the boot carpet went in, it was a white car. I think the VIN was 1168. There's a picture of it behind me right now. Um, I signed the boot, and I signed it to the memory of Brian Griffin, who was the original chief engineer of the car, who'd sadly passed away at that point. Mm. Photographed it, sent it to his wife, and said, look, thought you might like this. And she was chuffed a bit, so somebody had remembered Hmm. Um, her husband after all this time and uh, and uh, you know when you look around the company that was I think of the people with whom it's my privilege to have worked some of the managers that I was given and the rope that some of them gave me and the fun that I had uh, there were some idiots definitely a fair share of that but there's a whole pile of people who passionately wanted to do a good job and but you know they were they were never seen they they really weren't it was just all about the bad news how can we you know the media just feeds on bad news doesn't it it's not good news it's on newspapers bad news does well that so. passion i can still hear in your voice today and it's been fascinating <laughs> listening to you share all these amazing stories before we let you go, I've got to ask you this question because I am told you're best chums with uh, Brian Johnson of ACDC. What, oh, <laughs> what's, the, what's the story behind that? <laughs> oh, well, very quickly, Brian had done these series on the uh, Cars That Mock. Um, I'd watched the one he did on the Mini and he was fascinated and he's a big petrol head. Um, and I've been an ACDC fan from the Bon Scott years from way back, way back when, um, when we listened to LPs and stuff. And um, uh, anyway, Brian was due to come to the uh, Longbridge plant to do his programme on MG. And so, uh, um, of course, the, the marketing people didn't want me anywhere near it because they hated me. And uh, because I did a lot of 
PR and marketing for the company as the chief engineer for the car, and, and I just made myself present and and uh, open to to uh, to customers and the public as much as I could because I thought there was a good story to tell. And um, uh, anyway, so the manufacturing manager uh, said to me, he said, "Ian, right, Brian's coming on this day. Uh, if you want to be there this time, just so you know, great. Okay." So I turned up. And um, I saw this little figure with his black cap on walking up the, the dark aisle because very, you know, very much of the plant was used, very little of the plant was used at that time. There's only 17 stations on the track to build the MG6, for example, 17 out of, I think, 150. So I was walking, so I thought, right, this is my only chance. So I walked up to him, stuck my hand out and said, Brian, loved your program on the Mini. Did you buy the Cooper that you drove around the track? He said, yeah, I did actually. It's brilliant. I love it. I said, right. Well, it was probably made here on this track here. This was the mini track, he said. Yeah, yeah, this was the mini track. It's made all sorts of cars from A40s all the way through. Um, but minis were made here, yes. And it made in a very similar way to the, uh, the MGE uh, TF that we've, we've just finished making. You know, a couple of subframes, body dropped on top. Oh, right, brilliant. And at that point, I became aware of the sales and marketing director's eyes boring into the back of my neck. So I thought, right, I'd better retreat. So I, I retreated. And, and then Brian was duly introduced to, to, to all of the people, except me, of course. And, um, and then, anyway, they did the piece. He did his piece to camera. And uh, then the marketing director came over to me and said, Ian, are you busy? I said, no, what do you want me to do? And um, he said, all uh, oh, right, well, the next thing we're going to do is get Brian out in, uh, in a car with Paul Swift on two wheels in an MG3. Uh, here's the keys to my car, because um, he's going to park it between that and a, another MG6. I said, well, well, boss, your car's an old car, and it's got a tow bar on the back, and it's scratched and damaged. It looks horrible on camera. Oh, no, no, take it, you and get one of the touring cars. Get so-and-so to bring it round. And so a complete panic, or a typical management, poor management, poor planning, you know, really was. So I went out and said hello to Paul, because I knew his, his dad, Ross, as well. We worked together before. Uh, right, Paul, this is what I've been asked to do. This is what He said, well, yeah, but the car's dirty. The car's not even prepared properly. I mean, at least they've locked the diff up. But look, the car, right, I'll get the car washed. I'll do it myself. <laughs> So anyway, so uh, finally Brian gets around to, to come and be taken out on two wheels. And it's raining steadily at the time. And there's almost silence around the, the Longbridge plant because there was not much going on. And the old, one of the old runways that the German prisoners of war laid on the top of the hill that they leveled off that was the flying ground originally for Longbridge that then had the car assembly buildings put on top of it. There was a bit of a the runway still left. It was called the runway. It's a big, long strip of concrete. And um, we used to test cars up and down there and whatever. And that's where Paul was going to do his two-wheel stunt with Brian. So by this time, uh, I'd alerted some of my fellow musos from the engineering co community. And we came out of the technical centre and we stood under this gazebo in the rain um, watching Brian get taken away by Paul. And we'd arranged the cars by then so it would all going to happen. And away he went, hit the ramp, and the car goes on two wheels away from us, and the camera's rolling, and, and the rain's pouring. And the car went away from us, did 180 perfectly, came back towards us, and just before it, it, it came, uh, came to a stop, of course, Paul drops it onto two wheels, and the door opens, and, and Brian, doing his best John Wayne impression, sort of bow-legged getting off a horse, um, walks towards us and said, and, and I quote, my sphincter's going like a rabbit's nose. And I thought that was brilliant and would never make the fine leg, which of course he didn't. And he ended up talking to us about engineering because he's a trained, he's an apprentice, he works in the shipyards in the North East. He, he loves talking about engineering rather than music because that's his life. He really likes engineering and cars. And so we talked cars, just him and a bunch of blokes. And it was brilliant because he was kind and chivalrous and articulate. I mean, you know, I'm used to him belting out Al's Bells or Back in Black or whatever. And that's, that's what we see. But like many of the band, well, there was, <laughs> um, quite an articulate individual, actually, and knows his engineering stuff. I mean, one of the grossest, top grossing bands in the world, but he's down to earth. Very nice bloke. Ian, it's been an amazing journey through your career your history with mg and longbridge and the automotive industry of the uk in general uh, it's been fantastic and i really from the bottom of my heart thank you for coming on the mg car club podcast the 
MG Car Club Podcast. Safety Fast, the magazine of the MG Car Club. Get your copy now by joining us at mgcc.co.uk. Well, it's about this time each week on the MG Car Club podcast when we go rifling through the stores at the MG Car Club. Yes, we have a look through the shop at Kimber House to find out what brilliant merchandise is there for you this week. And something has come back in stock that I know was really popular. And this is a brilliant book, actually. MG Made in Abingdon. It's Echoes from the Shop Floor. And this is a fantastic sort of what they'd call in the media a human interest story in a book, isn't it? Yeah, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a collection of stories from the men and women who built those cars that we love. It's a it's a really, really good read. And it's everyone as well. This is the thing I like about this book. Uh, it's not just those in management or those that were involved in big decisions. It's literally, as the description of this book, if you turn it over, says, from tea trolley to production line and from apprentice to manager... The book includes memorable events, romance, tragedy, humour and motorsport and actually some really touching stories from the lead up to factory closure at Abingdon. It's a book that collects all of the fantastic memories and personal stories of those hundreds and thousands of people that through the years between 1929 and 1980 built MGs or worked for MG and were involved in Abingdon. And well, the amazing thing for us is most of those workers at some point would have probably walked past where your office is now, Adam, at Kimber House. Yeah, I mean, we, we, do, a, we do a workers' Christmas reunion um, every year, um, and we get more and more people come along uh, each year who, who've worked at the factory. Um, and it's a wonderful event and we get to hear those stories firsthand and these people get together you know they haven't worked together for, for 40 years now but when they get together it's as if it was just yesterday um, and they've got some amazing stories some really funny stories some really touching stories and a lot of them are collated in this book so yeah if you've got any passion for MG and and the amazing work they did in Abingdon this is a this is a must-have really. And you know for me history's important to understand and history is interesting but what makes it really touching and really engaging is when you hear the stories of real people real struggles real families real pride in the work that they were turning out of mg at the time although a car is what it is it's a piece of metal on wheels that moves you from a to b what makes cars interesting for us all what makes us passionate about them are the human stories the memories that are associated with them this book is a real example of that so definitely worth getting a copy if you are at all interested in the history of the great brand of mg it is the book mg made in abingdon it's 15.99 and you can find it in the mg car club shop now to order online from shop.mgcc.co.uk also the mg car club let's not forget is 90 years old this year and we have a whole range of fantastic clothing and merchandise to celebrate that fact it is only going to be available during the 90th anniversary so if you want it you got to get hold of it now it's going to be collector's item stuff this in the future you know and one thing that i've picked out because well i'm going to have one because i just need one it's like it's just a must it's the mg car club 90th anniversary men's polo shirt and it's just 25 quid and it's got that lovely 90th anniversary embroidered logo on everyone should be wearing these adam absolutely i mean I, i'm wearing one at the moment um i've got the advantage of, of being close to kimber house so i was able to buy one um when i was in the office this week um but yeah they're really good quality inica is obsessive about the quality of the shirts themselves the embroidery i mean she goes through dozens of samples and if they don't come up to scratch for her they go back and the suppliers are never heard of or seen again which is a little bit worrying um <laughs> but um but yeah these are really good quality and well worth uh, well worth uh, the price so yeah get them while you can just 25 quid a piece shop.mgcc.co.uk and if you don't mind adam i'm going to pick out something that i spotted on the shop while i was looking for those 
items we've just mentioned and i've got a few of the other socks in this series but i think these are really cleverly done there's no like cheesy motifs on them or like really cheesy logos it's just like really nice cool use of colors and design to sort of mark out what they intend to be and what i'm talking about here is the mgb gtle jubilee socks so these are socks that are made to look like the jubilee edition mgb le this is the one with the gold decals on the wings that run down the front wings down the doors to the back wings and it's got a certain look about it you can spot a jubilee edition mgb on the road from a mile away because of those decals and the green and the gold and how it all works together and these socks just bring that together i like them i think they're pretty stylish and they're just a tenner why not why not and they will uh once you get them they will increase your to 60 time and they do offer some really good grip so uh yeah why not <laughs> is that like when you used to run in your slippers as a kid down the street you were always faster in your slippers yeah <laughs> brilliant well of course you can check out all the merchandise all the gifts as well via our shop shop.mgcc.co.uk you can renew your membership and join if you're not a member via there as well your membership button is on the shop very easy and just a couple of clicks become a part of this worldwide mg community until our next mg car club podcast where we'll see you wherever you are listening to us and in whatever time and wherever in the world we'll see you then cheerio take care guys have a good one subscribe to receive new episodes of the mg car club podcast at mgpodcast.uk 